Welcome to episode 112 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's June 23rd, 2023. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about how we think about plague in Java in the first half of the 20th century. Our guest today is Maritz Mirojk, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for History at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And he's also the scientific secretary at the Health Council of the Netherlands. Today, we're going to discuss his new book, which was out in December of 2022 with Cornell University Press on this very topic, which was entitled A History of Plague in Java from 1911 to 1942. Maritz is a historian of medicine, colonialism, and the environment, working on the Dutch East Indies. He received his PhD from the University of Hong Kong, where he completed a thesis on a different but related topic, the history of dengue fever in modern Asia. Moritz was previously a postdoc at St. Andrews University in Scotland. He is a research fellow on the visual representations of the third plague pandemic, a project who we've interviewed several participants of, and also the PI, the principal investigator, Christos Lenteris, about 100 episodes ago. Maritz's new research project examines the histories of health messaging in Southeast Asia between 1895 and 1945, and in it, he investigates the origins and early development of the use of visual materials in public health education in this region. So hi, Maritz, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Lee. Hi, Marley. Nice to meet you here, and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. So today's episode returns us to our quote-unquote favorite disease, plague. And probably if we went through and tallied up how many episodes are on what disease, this would probably be the plurality. I don't think it would be the majority, but the plurality for sure. But today we're going to discuss not Lee's favorite outbreak of plague, the Justinianic plague, or the Black Death, as some of you may probably be the most familiar with, but the so-called third plague pandemic, which we have discussed previously once or twice on this podcast. But I also don't think it gets enough attention from plague studies as a whole. Now, it's often used as a source of quantitative data very often, right? But often with not really very much local nuance. Now, I think this podcast will explore a new place that hasn't been talked about much when it comes to plague, which is Java. And hopefully will indicate how responses to this pandemic were quite different depending on where you are. We also haven't discussed places in Asia nearly enough on this podcast, so part of this episode also aims to rectify that as well. Yeah, I can't really argue with what you pointed out, Merle, but maybe to follow your point, our third pandemic episodes really reflect the state of research on this pandemic, which is to say that in the current state of research, there are many case studies and few syntheses, which is why our episodes focused and will focus, at least now, on the case studies and not on a broader story like we have, for example, the first plague pandemic, Justinianic plague, and to some extent also the second plague pandemic, also known as the beginning of which was the Black Death. So work such as Maritz is, is important in this regard since it opens a new case study with all its idiosyncrasies and helps whoever will end up trying to write, quote unquote, the definitive history of the third pandemic in the future. But before we dive into plague in Java and the early and mid 20th century, what's going on with you, Merle? Where are you right now in your travels across the United States? And how are things there? Well, we've actually finished our travels across the United States, Lee. So you should be pleased to know. I know you're the US road tripping expert slash aficionado. So we made it across from Oklahoma in three nights and four days of driving. We could have done a little faster, but we wanted to stop to see various people. And I have to say, having done this now twice with my kids, it is definitely easier this time than the previous time. And we're getting pretty good at these long road trips overall. And it's actually been also very helpful for me to start to think about you know different places and how they are, how they act, what the difference is between people and kind of how you live in each place. So where are you now, though, Merle? So now we are where we will stay for the next six weeks, which is, you know, where we met actually, Lee, which is the great city town of Princeton, New Jersey, probably as my wife would say, the greatest state in America, although she's a New Yorker. So, you know, I don't know how that came to be, but I think it's probably a place she is the most comfortable and likes quite a bit. So we're renting a house here for about six weeks. And this was after we did a week with 
my wife's parents in Massachusetts, a week with my parents in Vermont, and then staying with some friends along the way or seeing them along the way during the trip. So all in all, quite a nice fun trip. And you know, we end up somewhere where hopefully both of us can get work done. So what about you, Lee? What's happening? From what I heard, you guys were on strike or something like that for a little bit? Yeah, we ended our strike, I think, two or three weeks ago and decided not to add any more time to the semester. So the semester is still going to end the same day it was supposed to end, meaning that for at least one of my classes, we ended up losing about a third of the classes across the semester, all throughout the semester, which is interesting, and to put it mildly. But maybe on topics that are closer to this podcast, I mean, Israel had a monkeypox case. We had one case of monkeypox that made the news, apparently a guy who came back or frequented Portugal. He actually had two vaccines for monkeypox, but still got sick. And it was interesting, I think, because it did make headlines. So not like the big headlines, but it was definitely there on like near the top. So you guys still have illness and sickness and disease in Israel. I thought that was completely gone. Once COVID was gone, it wiped out every other disease in Israel is what you once told me. Almost. No, but I mean, monkeypox was not a big thing here the way it was in the United States. And in a sense, I feel that we're kind of back to where we were in the pre-COVID days, right? I mean, these diseases, I mean, you'd have like one or two cases, they would make headlines just because it's something you can write about. And when news is slow, why not? I guess from like a media perspective. So we're there. I mean, it's not as if we necessarily learned anything or it's not as if the public health response has been better as a result but it's just the, the amount of attention that's given to this kind of story. So that has happened. We have another week until the semester ends. So yeah, we just had all the like end of semester parties and events that most semesters, I guess, have before they're done. And we are starting to plan our move, our big move to the United States in a bit over a month. So I think we're going to miss each other there, Merle, because we're going to be coming in in early August. I can definitely identify with what you were saying earlier. I mean, traveling is much harder now, especially with both a daughter and a dog. So it's not like a, just going on a flight, but you have to like plan all these logistics before. And especially now when we're coming to the United States with and essentially nothing, right? So no car, no way to like get around. So we'll see how that goes and I'll probably keep people updated. Just one short question. I have many for you, Lee. Is it harder to figure out how to travel with the daughter or the dog? <laughs> Logistically, the flight itself is harder with the dog. But Merle, you would probably understand this. The amount of health-related issues that you need to like report when you enroll your kid in like a school. I mean, this is probably like normal in the United States. I've never encountered that before. But I mean, it's not common at all here, right? I mean, Israel has its own system of taking care of these things and trying to translate both like the language, but also the documents from like the Israeli versions to what New Jersey needs. That's, let's say, takes a while. That's been taking a while. But enough of that. How are you, Moritz? Where are you now? And how are things going on there? Yeah, things are uh, pretty fine for me. I'm in Netherlands now. I've been based here for about a year or two now working at the University of Leiden and kind of balancing two jobs. So doing the research uh, on the one hand and doing the other job on the other hand. I would say like in terms of the research and such, I'm uh, working slow but steady, making some progress on my project, getting to know a lot of new people at Leiden. I've been away from Holland for 10 years, so I'm really reconnecting, I think, with uh, people in academia over here. <laughs> so that's really nice. Yeah, and learning uh, a lot of new skills also for my uh, job for the government. So. That's lovely. So it's a very exciting time. Yeah, I mean, I was actually in the Netherlands, what, six months ago, Lee, I think, and quite wonderful. I didn't like the rain and what's effectively, you know, two to three degree centigrade temperature. That's always a miserable combination, I think, but really had a wonderful time. You should have been here for the last month. We had a month of drought, basically, and it was amazing. But I've never had worse hay fever in my life. So, yeah, it's ups and downs. Well, glad you're getting settled. And it's obviously not the reason we brought you on the podcast, but maybe could you tell us 
I guess in like a few sentences, what exactly does your work for the government entail? I mean, as a scientific secretary at the Health Council? Yeah, sure. I can speak about that in general terms. I assist an expert committee who basically seek to answer questions from the government about health-related questions uh, to do with the environment. So right now I'm working on a topic that has to do with uh, chemical pollution. Basically, how are humans exposed to chemical pollution? How much? How should we follow that? How should we monitor that? So that's the general kind of topic. And then there's a committee and they will make a health policy advice, basically. And I'm the person kind of writing down and uh, being the person in the middle of the academics and the policy officials, I suppose. So trying to bridge that gap between uh, research and policy. So you get the research questions from the government side, you conduct the research, and you and the rest of the committee come up with like a plan that is policy oriented based on the research that you found? Yeah, exactly. So usually a question comes from the government a ministry, and they will ask something about like, how would a certain change affect, you know, health outcomes? What can we do to improve health? There's certain concern that they might want to know more about. So then they, they might ask the health council and the health council would then put together a committee and the committee will be outside academics, basically. And the person writing policy advice, that's me, based on the input of the committee is telling us. I have to say it actually sounds very functional as opposed to a few other countries. I mean, maybe to move on to the actual interview. So we tend to begin with a broad question to situate ourselves. So maybe let's follow that tradition and set the scene. Very broadly, where is Java and who is in political control in the period you discuss in your book? I think that's a great question to start with. So uh, Java is an island in present-day Indonesia. It is one of the most densely populated islands in the world, also at the time that we're discussing at the start of the 20th century. And it was essentially the center of the Dutch colony in this region that was known as the Dutch East Indies. It was probably like the most intensively colonized island in the archipelago, with the Dutch being able to kind of pursue very close control over the island through like a form of collaboration, basically, with indigenous rulers or local elites. And what might be worth mentioning is that at the time that we're looking at, the Dutch have embarked on a slightly more progressive form of colonial rule. So we're in a period often referred to as the ethical policy period, where the Dutch kind of try to make investments in infrastructure, education, and public health. And within this more ethical policy, was the underlying drive behind that some kind of civilizing mission or some version of, I mean, the white man's burden? Yeah, exactly, actually. It's a kind of the Dutch counterpart to the white man's burden or the French mission civilisatrice. So during the 19th century, Java and these other islands in the archipelago, they were kind of treated like uh, colonies of extraction. And there's a lot of like a growing resistance to that also in the Netherlands. And basically at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, the Dutch government kind of formally announces a, uh, a move towards this new ethical policy. There is this notion that the Dutch have a debt of honor, it's called, to the Indies population. There have been some very exposés, I suppose, of colonial scandals, uh, forms of exploitation. So, yeah, there's this growing sense that uh, Poland has more to do there than just exploit the country. Let's now, I guess, go to the second kind of broad question, which is when and how does plague reach Java and how long is it there for? So the exact origin of plague in Java is not entirely known. Basically, what happens is that it enters Java at some point in late 1910, early 1911, and it kind of skips over major port cities, which is where the Dutch would have expected to first see the disease. But what happens is that there are all these curious cases of disease somewhere in an interior district far away from the Dutch center of colonial government in East Java. And finally, at the end of March 1911, they recognize that there's an outbreak of plague. They later kind of trace the outbreak to rice imports, either from India or Burma or China, uh, somewhere late in 1910. The disease remains present in Java all through the Dutch colonial period. And I think even now it might still be endemic among rodent populations. So at least through the 1950s and 1970s and 1980s, you would have occasional human cases as well. So the disease has never left. And do we have a sense of 
you know, data on how many people got sick, how many people died over the course of, say, 30 years of, you know, Dutch control of Java and then maybe even afterwards? That's actually an interesting question. How many people died? Yes, uh, the Dutch kind of arrive at a figure of 215,000 deaths over a period of 30 years. The number of cases is not known, and the Dutch were actually critiqued for that by foreign like organizations such as the Rockefeller. They were like, oh, the Dutch aren't keeping track of the number of people who got sick. So we only have a mortality figure, basically. And what is the population of Java in this period? must be about 40 million or so by the end of Dutch colonial rule. So it's a very large population and several tens of millions at least. And yeah, in terms of like the impact of this disease, like I think there is an average of about 7,000 plague deaths per year. It is severe, but it is not statistically the most significant disease on such a, a large population. Now, before we move on, I mean, just one question that might be interesting, I mean, at least to me, following the recent class I taught about pandemics and the third pandemic did obviously figure there. So you're saying that Java got hit, so to speak, by the third pandemic pretty late, right? More than 15 years after it starts in Hong Kong, kind of moves to Bombay. How is that explained, right? I mean, there's obviously a lot of shipping going on in that area, both from there to other parts of the world. I mean, within Southeast Asia. So how do we explain the fact that plague arrived in Java so late? I think that's a really good question. And I don't have a real answer, at least for the actual mechanics there. Basically, the Dutch come up with explanations like, oh, the climate isn't suitable for plague. That's during the early years of the third plague pandemic. So through the late 1890s, they would say things like, oh, clearly our climate isn't hospitable to the disease because all of these shipping routes from Hong Kong to Australia, like and across the Pacific and to Africa, to India, plague is carried everywhere, but constantly the Dutch East Indies are kind of skipped over. We're, we're lucky, but this has something to do with our climate or people are just less susceptible. Of course, there are very occasional cases of plague rats or even a few human plague cases in Sumatra at some point that cause concern. After 15 years, they get a little bit complacent, I suppose. Like the disease hasn't arrived there. They keep a watch in some major port cities, but they don't expect an outbreak anymore because they basically think of themselves as immune. They don't know why. They have their theories. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one just because obviously in terms of climate and that kind of stuff, it's not that different, right? One would imagine from much of the rest of the area, you know, say Vietnam and other places. So it is an interesting question, which I imagine they came up, as you said, with their own answers to why they were so wonderful. The other, I guess, question I was curious about is having done some research on, say, the 1918 influenza pandemic, do we know what the plague numbers look like compared to that pandemic, for example, in Java or, you know, any other disease numbers, perhaps? I do actually know that figure. I have to look it up, though. I feel like the number of deaths from Spanish flu across the Dutch East Indies, I think it's been estimated at one point something million, quite high, so quite dramatic, actually especially compared to plague, which like the death rate for that over that 30-year period is much lower. The Spanish flu, however, in Indonesia is slightly ignored at the time. Like It happens, and people cope with it, but there's not much written about it, I have to say. like The source material on the outbreak is comparatively scarce. I have to say also, I didn't really look at it closely. So, I mean, in your book, you point out that, I mean, despite this much lower mortality, that plague has, which actually we might even want to think about the cases per year, as you mentioned, right? I mean, if if plague kills 7,000 people a year, but the flu comes in and kills, let's say, a million or over a million over the course of one or two years, I mean, you probably know the details there. But despite this lower mortality, you have argued that plague caused more significant changes than these other diseases, right? And we can also add malaria, I guess, to this list. Why is that the case? What is plague that comes so late have these social and cultural impacts that the other diseases don't seem to have? Great question. I think for plague specifically, there is something about the historical aura of the disease, as Christos Lynchers actually mentions, you know, like it's considered to be this disease at the end of human civilization. It has these kind of Armageddon style imagery kind of going around it. It has a, a fearsome reputation. There is also a tremendous impact that the third plague pandemic has had in India. And just before the outbreak in the Dutch East Indies, there is the outbreak in Manchuria, the pneumonic plague outbreak, 
over there, which was quite horrifying. So there is that very recent experience with plague. And then, of course, it's the novelty of having the disease in Java itself um, that triggers a bit of a panicky response at first. And then afterwards, it becomes a bit of a matter of prestige, I suppose, like plague control becomes a matter of like state pride and too many careers and too many reputations are at stake to stop plague control after so much has been invested in it. So it remains a bit of the primary focus of the Dutch Public Health Service through the remainder of the Dutch colonial period. So you just mentioned Dutch plague control. What is Dutch plague control and is it different than English plague control or American plague patrol or pick your other favorite country? It is subtly different. It does borrow, of course, a lot from what is happening elsewhere. The initial response is a little bit of everything. So there are segregations and quarantines and cordon sanitaire and vaccination, some tests with uh, treating patients with serum. But ultimately, very quickly, actually, the Dutch settle on a strategy that they call home improvement. So they start rebuilding the houses of the Javanese, wherever plague appears, they start rebuilding or renovating local houses. And they kind of carry on with that project for 30 years. By their own numbers, they improve some 1.6 million houses. Now, just out of curiosity, is improvement a euphemism in the sense of, you know, they're not really improving things? Definitely. <laughs> well, I kind of use the term, I suppose, as neutrally as I can in the book. It's just the term that they used, woningverbetering. And yeah, I'll just decided to go along with it. But then I have some critical side notes. First of all, of course, like it is a tremendous invasion of like your personal life if people come in and like supposedly improve your house. And we can talk about that later. But ultimately, it turns out that these improved houses have their own health challenges. So they're definitely not really improved. I also think that if you have your own beautiful building style, your own design style, that if you come in and you replace them by all kinds of other houses, I don't consider that an improvement. I consider that bulldozing over cultural heritage, I suppose. So could you walk us through what exactly does house improvement mean in this context, right? So who initiates it? How does it proceed? Do you need consent by the person whose house is being improved? Or is it just like, I don't know, this heavy-handed, top-down, let us improve your house for you, and someone comes in, bulldozes your house, and like builds something new instead? So how does this work? It is definitely pretty top-down and pretty like imperative, let's say. Very early on in the outbreak, the Dutch, they've kind of settled or accepted this theory that rats are the main reservoir of the disease. And they started a hunt, I suppose, for plague rats in the affected districts. And they can't find them for several months until finally they discover that rats live very close to humans inside the bamboo beams that the Japanese use primarily for house construction. So the Dutch really start to like, build up this anxiety, I suppose, around bamboo, especially hollow bamboo. So the bamboo is basically used for all kinds of beams and posts, but also for furniture. And in all of these hollow beams, they start to find dead rats, dying rats, sick rats, or sometimes healthy rats. And they just become very much aware of how close humans and rats cohabitate. And given that rats are then implicated as the main reservoir of plague, the Dutch idea is that if they rebuild houses in such a way that they can close off all of these nooks and crannies and openings and whatever. They also have these double walls made of mats in between the bamboo poles. And if they can close off all of those spaces, then the rats will be pushed out of the house, built out, and then you break this chain of contact. And then by that, you stop the chain of transmission of plague from rats to humans. So I guess I'm curious, you said that they noticed these things. I mean, was this like one guy went out there and said, aha, I found the answer from seeing it once? Or did they go there and have reams of data and somehow put this together, you know, X number of rats leading to Y number of cases? Or is this, as I said, purely a gut, you know, some dude at the top was like, let's do this thing. It's a little bit of a progression of one guy coming up with the idea, I suppose. At some point, they kind of give up on the idea of rats being the carrier or like the reservoir altogether because they just can't find any sick rats. And then ultimately, a new guy is flown in, so to speak, from Amsterdam, and he comes up with this idea like, how about all these plague rats are actually living somewhere inside the house after all? And then they start with little trials, tearing down houses, ultimately finding a few plague rats, 
And then as a result, basically, they set up these search brigades that start to systematically tear down the houses of plague patients. And then they start to find these plague rats. And they realized that before that, they were too late for searching the houses. They usually came in a few days later after a plague patient had been removed, by which time a rat corpse would usually have already have disappeared. So these new search teams, they come in immediately after a plague case is identified, and then they also start searching the houses of the neighbors. And then suddenly all of these plague rats are coming out from everywhere inside these houses. So this basically two leaders of these impromptu plague service then come up with the idea that if they can only close up all of these dead spaces, all of these openings, then they can break the chain of transmission. And then they settle on that. And basically the story is that it turns out to be more complex. Whatever they come up with, the rat finds a new way of coming inside the house, of navigating these new barriers. So yeah, the project kind of evolves over time. And the whole list of building requirements is being articulated over time. These The houses that were improved mostly or all belong to people who had plague, people who caught plague from apparently these rats living around them. So that would be one question. And the other question is who pays for all this, right? Because obviously renovating or rebuilding houses is going to be pretty expensive, especially when you're talking about like a million houses, more than a million. Where is the money coming from? For your first question about the houses that are being improved, first, the strategy is to just rebuild the houses of plague victims, which is perhaps not as dramatic yet. You know, like you have this house, it's been torn down to search for rats, and then they rebuild a new house that is supposedly plague resistant. They, at some point, realize that it is not a particularly efficient strategy because plague kind of moves between houses and through villages. So over time, I would say after about four or five years, they have a real system. They start to improve whole villages at a time systematically. So there will be an outbreak in a district and then a team comes in, assesses which houses are fine, which houses need to be renovated and which houses need to be torn down completely because they're so ramshackle or whatever. And then they need to be entirely rebuilt. And yeah, what then happens is that they come in, they set up a local industry for timber and for tile production, and they renovate an entire village, which, as you can probably hear, it's a very slow process. So they are constantly running after the outbreak. So the outbreak spreads from East Java to Central and then to West Java, and the Dutch are constantly behind. As for your second question on who is paying for all of this, at first, the Dutch government comes in with a large bag of money and they pay for the entire plate control scheme. But as they start to realize that this whole home improvement scheme is going to take a long time and it's going to be implemented across large parts of Java, they come up with a new way of financing it. Basically, they start offering advanced loans to the residents of houses that require improvement that the residents then have to repay in, I think, eight half-yearly installments. Usually the cost is about 30 or 40 guilders, which is quite significant, a substantial amount of money. And many people are, in fact, not able to pay for that. So they end up with debts or have these very long running debts. Here and there, governments also they finance part of the reconstruction scheme. Some cities finance their own urban developments, like redevelopments. As you're talking about this, the thing that comes to my mind immediately is that this could have been, I'm not sure, maybe correct me if I'm wrong or acknowledge that I'm right, but this could have been like extremely lucrative contracting like scheme, right? I mean, who's the contractor who's like actually building this, right? I mean, I'm assuming that the actual builders are Japanese, but the person who is running the entire operation, are they Dutch and are they making a lot of money based on this? That's a good question, and I actually don't have a really good answer for that. It seems to me that most of the industries that emerge are quite local. So there will be a sawmill erected somewhere, and there will be a tile production center somewhere. I get the feeling that they usually employ local people because the Dutch are constantly complaining about a shortage of labor because the people in a district have other jobs as well. So the labor isn't always present to produce these new materials. Someone must be profiting, you'd think. I don't know, actually. I was also thinking, as you asked that question, like in terms of the health benefits that could have emerged, that could have been quite lucrative as well if this home improvement scheme hadn't been so squarely focused on plague control. So the Dutch very specifically rebuilt houses to counter rats, build out plague. And they had this opportunity to also do something about, you know, improving these houses for other diseases as well. But they very consciously said, no, we're not doing that because then it becomes too expensive. And you know, the local population is shouldering the burden of this already. So 
can't do that. So I guess I'm curious, maybe some listeners are curious, did this work? I mean, you know, from our perspective, did this work? And then I guess the other more interesting question is, did they think this was working right over time? Did it work? Yes, it did work in the sense that uh, home improvement reduced the number of breeding sites that you could find around the house. Did it also not work? No. Over time, the Dutch come to realize that plague rats will find new ways of entering the house. They will live in new spaces. People might not inspect their houses. So plague rats would just end up in all kinds of nooks and crannies anyway. And even improved houses that are being very kept clean and good maintenance the Dutch just keep finding new places for rats to breed. And in that sense, yeah, the home improvement by itself is quite useless. So what they then end up doing is instituting a whole education program where they try and instruct the Javanese occupants of these plague houses, of these improved houses, that in order for an improved house to remain plague free, they need to also clean it and inspect it frequently. So there is a, a whole education campaign tied to this home improvement scheme. So maybe after this discussion of the top-down home improvement program scheme, maybe let's kind of shift the focus a bit. What do the Javanese themselves think about all this, right? What do they think about plague? How are they conceive of plague? And what are their responses to the home improvement project? I mean, are they kind of like, okay, do they tolerate it? Do they try to resist it more or less violently? What do they do? So for your first question about like how do the Japanese conceive of plague, I found it very difficult to access. Like my Indonesian isn't particularly good. And I did look for sources, like I could have had them translated, you know, in, in case I would find them. But I ultimately didn't find too many sources about Japanese ideas about plague, and they're also not of their response to plague control. I found some things. I'll get to that. But basically, like the source material was very scarce. During the first days of the outbreak, the Dutch come in and they make some photographs of the district that are plague-stricken. And then you find some photographs of houses that have been painted with all kinds of figures that were supposedly like painted on there by local occupants to keep evil spirits at bay, presumably bringing the plague. And that's basically the extent of what I could find of local responses at the time. As home improvement develops, I kind of noticed that the Dutch continue to mention that it isn't a popular policy. And I think that might be a bit of a euphemism that basically saying like they really didn't like it. But on the other hand, I didn't find any sources that spoke about active resistance. So kind of where I ended up with is that people resisted home improvement more subtly. So they would receive these instructions about what they had to do and what they could do, and then perhaps actively chose to ignore them or only engage with them partially. And then they sometimes got a fine from the Dutch government, prompting them to do more, I suppose. What is far more resisted is something called a spleen puncture. So I think somewhere in the 1920s and 1930s, whenever there's a plague outbreak, there will be a health assistant visiting a place and they would take a spleen puncture from a suspected plague corpse. And this is resisted fiercely in multiple districts of Java, because it's considered to be some sort of violation of the body. So this is where you see very active resistance. And the fact that I haven't come across any references for that, anything similar for home improvement, leads me to think that there was a bit of a passive acquiescence, I suppose, to home improvement. So you mentioned photographs very briefly, just a minute ago. And I'm kind of curious, you know, part of the broader project that you guys were doing is about kind of what it looks like to show plague in terms of photographs and as one of the first times you see this as a medium. So how does this work in Java in particular to show, you know, both within Java, maybe both back in the Netherlands and kind of to other international audiences of what the Dutch colonial government is doing? Photographs are actually a very important part of my source base. It was a very lovely surprise to learn that there were so many photographs of plague control in Java. Basically, when I came into a Christos's project in St. Andrews, he gave me a set of about 100 photographs or so. So those were already a great resource, and they were mostly from the 1911 outbreak. And over time, I found, I think, over 550 photographs of plague control in a later stage. So in the early stage, there were a lot of photographs being taken of a few plague patients, but mostly 
various forms of rats living in bamboo or nesting in bamboo or rat corpses in bamboo, all kinds of different pieces of bamboo lifted from Javanese houses. And I think that these photographs were initially used to support this idea that the Javanese house had a crucial function in helping to spread plague. So they were used as arguments, I suppose, to a broader audience or to the Dutch colonial government, to audiences back home, that home improvement really was necessary. And those photographs differ quite significantly, I think, from photographs that are produced later in the late 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, when you get hundreds of photographs of home improvement itself being executed in different stages. You get photographs of houses that are supposedly plague dangerous and then houses being improved and houses that have been improved. You get photographs of houses and landscapes, all kinds of things, all to show the spectacular nature, I suppose, of this intervention. And maybe to stay on the photos, so who is the audience of these photos? I mean, how are they conveyed to a broader audience, right? Are these photos that are limited to government meetings, for example, or like officials? Or do these photos come out in local or national back in the Netherlands or international media? Do you have postcards? If I remember correctly, in India, some plague-related imagery does seem to appear on postcards as well, and that's supposed to convey something about whether Western medicine, the British rule in India. Is this the same in the Dutch and Java case, or is the context completely different? So no photographs that I've encountered. I would love to find some. Perhaps there were. But through these photographs, plague control was definitely broadcast to a very large audience in Java, back in the Netherlands, and also to foreign audiences, to a slightly lesser extent. They find their way into all kinds of hygiene and colonial exhibitions. You have like annual fairs in Java, like the Pasar Gambir, and there would be like pavilions from the civil medical service where they would show photographs, but also maps and models of houses before and after being improved. And these photographs, yeah, they're basically everywhere. They're published in Dutch medical journals, in newspapers at the later stage. They're reproduced in large format for these exhibitions that I've mentioned. There is lantern slides, projections, also for audiences in newly affected villages that are about to receive this home improvement campaign, being used as a bit of an educational or promotional material. So these photographs would then be shown to say, like, this is what we're going to do to your house and this is why. And these photographs are then being shown in Holland, kind of to underscore the ethical nature of Dutch rule, to use that term ethical again. And the same thing also for foreign audiences there, I think. Basically, they were being used to showcase how well the Dutch were doing in their colony in Southeast Asia, to competing colonial powers. So what happens in terms of the Dutch colonial project once everything has been demolished and rebuilt, right? You have all these, I guess, beautiful new houses, at least from the Dutch perspective. I mean, does life just kind of go on? Is, you know, everyone just super happy throwing parties in the streets because now there's no more plague, supposedly? You know, what does this look like in the aftermath of all the rebuilding? It's actually a really funny question. Looking back on my sources, I think the Dutch are notoriously quiet about what happens to improved villages after they're done. So basically, they come in, they improve a village, they will go into the statistics, and then we never hear from a district again, <laughs> to put it a little bit blunt. but. What definitely happens is that there is a long period of follow-up where these health and hygiene mantries, like these public health assistants, come in and they are doing the propaganda work, basically the health education work, where they teach the local population how to keep their improved home plague-free. So that definitely happens. Parties and celebrations, I can't say I've come across any reference to that. Basically, I think that has to do with that the plague never formally ends, you know, that there is no end of the outbreak. The outbreak just simmers on. It moves from one district to the next. Outbreaks within Java that have come under control reignite a few years later. I do get a sense that the villages that have been improved remain plague-free most of the time, especially once the, kind of the home improvement scheme becomes more systematic. And ultimately, plague is never really eradicated. And then the World War II breaks out and heralds a whole new phase out of curiosity, does plague never come back because the Dutch themselves say plague doesn't come back to the villages because they just say, well, we're not going to check those places. We've done our building. We've done our public health campaign. So now everything should be fine. You know, let's go on to the next thing. 
or do they actually go back through and keep recording cases? Some cases do keep being recorded. So even all the way in Malang, where the outbreak first starts in 1911, you will have cases in the 1930s once in a while. But the case numbers are much, much lower and the response is a lot quicker. I also seem to remember there was a study done, by I forget who, but someone wrote a study saying that the Central and East Java, where home improvement had been kind of implemented more thoroughly, enjoyed generally higher levels of house quality through the 1950s and 60s as well, I think. So it did have something of a permanent impact. I should mention, perhaps in terms of celebration, there is that moment when a Dutch physician or scientist creates his own plague vaccine. So Louis Otten in 1935, he creates this new vaccine and it's hugely efficacious. It really drives down the numbers of plague cases and he is celebrated. <laughs> and the funny thing there is that despite the success of the vaccine, even Otten himself emphasizes the continued need for home improvement. As I said, so many careers were tied to that. that they couldn't just shift away from that all of a sudden because something new came around. So they kind of use them as reinforcing strategies. So, I mean, maybe to follow up on that, one of the striking things that I've been noticing in your answers is that this seems to be much more of a public health run by architects and engineers and economists and much less by physicians, right? So physicians, medical research, I mean, these things haven't featured in your answers, at least very frequently. And my question is, to what extent do they actually exist in the source material, right? Are physicians and medical researchers somehow lower on the totem pole within Dutch Java, which for whatever reason ended up like really focusing on home improvement, or are they also like, getting a lot of attention. I mean, such as some of the big names in other European physicians, right? Other researchers, I mean, from Paulo Simon to Alexander Yersin to obviously partially Japanese, Shiba Saburo Kitasato. So, I mean, all these people are working and become these heroic figures. Whereas in the Dutch story, you just mentioned this guy who shows up in the thirties, but what happens until then? I actually really enjoy that question because it brings to mind a bit of a funny episode from the research, basically the Dutch Public Health Service or the Civil Medical Service, there's a renaming, um, they get in a little bit of a brawl with the Department of Public Works about who should be running this whole home improvement scheme. And ultimately, uh, the higher ups decide in favor of the Public Health Service running this scheme. So basically, you have all of these physicians who are retraining as architects. The earliest plague resistant house models are being designed by a guy named Willem de Vogel and Johannes van Lochem, two guys. And they are a bacteriologist and a physician, I suppose. And they remain in charge of plague control through the 1910s, or like they at least inspire it. And after that, yeah, the Public Health Service remains in charge. It's physicians who do the drawing of these new model buildings that keep improving and developing. And public works, architects, engineers, they don't really come into the story anymore. There's one person that is being recruited to give some input who is an engineer or an architect. And also all of the hygiene mentries who are being used to do this education work, they are basically helping people clean their house and inspect their house and do small corrections in the house. But they're supposedly medical personnel who become completely focused on the managing, I suppose, of buildings, which is quite an interesting development. So this has been a really fascinating conversation just because of such a focus on rebuilding and housing and this type of thing. And it strikes me, based on some of the opening points that Lee made, that for much of the response to the third plague pandemic is relatively different, unique to different places, it looks like so far. So do you think there are other places that do something similar in terms of this focus on rebuilding like Java does? Or is this just a Dutch thing? Or is it really you know, just a one-off and everywhere is just kind of doing their own thing to an extent, so far as we can reconstruct the response in different places. I think in different places, the response to plague differs very considerably, but there is a persistent focus on the built environment that we see in other places as well. And it just manifests in different ways, I think. So home improvement is definitely not unique to Java. It is implemented in Java to an unprecedented extent and what is particularly interesting also there, I think, is that it is implemented in rural settings rather than urban settings. So most plague outbreaks are related to cities. But we see in Hong Kong, for instance, that 
you have the raising, burning, and resumption of the Taipingshan area, I think. And is it in Bombay, where you have also some sort of municipal reconstruction project? Also, I think in Rio de Janeiro, I, I seem to recall having read that basically groups of people are pushed to the margins of cities so that the inner city becomes safer, less crowded, what have you. I don't know exactly what happens there. but And of course, a famous example of the burning of Chinatown in Honolulu, which may or may not have been particularly accidental, but that was also kind of sparked by this fear that plague was residing in places, in buildings specifically. This focus on the built environment is, in Java at least, is just another facet to a broader story. And if we zoom out of the third plague pandemic in Java and the first half of the 20th century, does this at all feature in contemporary historical memory? Do people in Java remember that this was a thing actually not long ago, less than a century ago? Are there, I don't know, museums of home improvement or museums that feature home improvement, like memorials? Is this something that's being spoken of, remembered at all, or have people just forgotten and moved on, kind of like we are doing with COVID right now? I think the latter, actually, like from the people that I've spoken to from Indonesia, from the research that I've done, the sources I found post-war, it doesn't seem like home improvement is remembered particularly strongly. I also feel like it might not have been the most severe intervention ultimately in the terms of like, okay, the house was rebuilt, it was uncomfortable and expensive, but ultimately, you know, you have a war to deal with and decolonization. So people had perhaps other things on their mind. And I don't think it was as invasive as some other colonial health interventions, perhaps. So is it being remembered? A little bit. When COVID was happening in Indonesia, I noticed there were quite a few publications that mentioned like previous outbreaks. They went back to colonial times and they would mention plague and Spanish flu, of course. And then home improvement would get the occasional mention. I don't think there was a lot of in-depth research being done on home improvement before this. I think there was just one chapter really that people could consult. So that story wasn't really being told. Some pictures would be shown sometimes. A lot of photographs that I studied were publicly accessible. So sometimes you would come across one. But I don't think the, the whole home improvement thing was actively remembered badly or positively over there. It seems to me, but I would love to be corrected. And then maybe one last question to bring us full circle, but you've already kind of touched upon it, is I imagine you were kind of tracking, looking at what the response to COVID was in Java, just because you were writing this book at the same time. I imagine, you know, you were doing both things at once. So what was the response like? And as you said, there doesn't seem to be very much memory of some of these home improvement projects, but was there anything that they put a particular focus upon? The response to COVID in Indonesia, I have to say, I studied it only like very lightly through some newspaper reports and such. From what I gather, there was a bit of a, a lockdown light approach with rolling lockdowns in different places at different times. I did notice they had a pretty strong immigration requirements for people to be vaccinated for the last year or so. Other than that, I can't really speak to COVID in Indonesia, I'm afraid. I definitely feel like they didn't draw any lessons in that sense from a response to plague, other than that they, uh, you know, just like other places in the world, we reverted to our lockdowns and our sometimes bits of segregation and all kinds of cordons. But it was very interesting to be writing this book literally at the same time as this pandemic was happening. Um, I'd done all the research and such, and I was writing this. I think I was on my third chapter or so when COVID started to happen. And it was very interesting to be writing these things. Let's just say your source material suddenly didn't feel very different from the news. So I think with returning us to, I guess, the present, I just wanted to thank you so much, Moritz, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. Yeah, thanks so much, Moritz. Absolutely. I thought that was a really nice episode that added another key place and response to plague that, you know, as he mentioned, was in some ways not that different from other places, but its singular focus on home improvement, which strikes me as one of the greatest euphemisms ever put together, but shows how different places respond differently, even if they all have the same broad factual information, right? Rats spread plague is you know, the third plague pandemic's, I guess, 
greatest gift to plague studies. And so how different places do that is really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think we should actually pay more attention. I mean, we broadly speaking, right? Should pay more attention to the idiosyncrasies of the third plague pandemic, right? So we kind of assume early on, Merle, I don't know if you remember this, when we worked on the Justinianic plague, I mean, the assumption was that both the Justinianic plague, the Black Death, were kind of homogenous, right? I mean, they come in, have the more or less same impact in different places and kind of move on to the next place. And I think what the third plague pandemic has demonstrated over and over again is that you actually can't make that argument, definitely not for the third plague pandemic. And you can see that even if you focus on particular cases such as India, but once you move outside like one with a political entity or political system, I mean, you get all these like responses that may have something to do with responses elsewhere, as you've said, but are also like very different and very different both with regards to what the government or the political system does, but also how plague is understood, who's actually in control, right? I mean, here, the solution is this massive rebuilding project as opposed to thinking about the stories we've heard and actually taught at this point, right, about Yersin. I mean, these are completely different ways to understand the same pandemic. And once you add this to the fact that Java was hit only 15 years after the third plague pandemic starts, that's also something that we need to pay more attention to and emphasize not only for the third plague pandemic, but also for our readings of earlier pandemics. Yeah, it strikes me part of the issue here is the origins and transmission and initial impact, right? As we've long said on this podcast, of a disease are well-studied or put together or understood or if not well-studied, then a key focus of study, right? You can talk about this with the Justinianic plague or the Black Death or the Third Plague pandemic if you want. But what in fact this shows very clearly is that reactions to the specific thing, in this case, as I was somewhat joking, the rat, can be extraordinarily different in different places. And that in fact, what actually makes probably a bigger impact are the decades long changes that the response in this case to the rat, right, change many things in different places in a variety of different ways. Yeah. And maybe to continue this for one additional point, I mean, if you compare the outbreaks in Hong Kong, Bombay, India, San Francisco, Honolulu, I mean, these are all essentially urban, right? I mean, you have these stories about how governments react to plague within the urban context, how the urban context provides fuel, so to speak, right, for movements or different populations within the city. And I think that one of the interesting things that came out in this interview is that, in Java at least, this is a very rural phenomenon, a very rural discussion that's being made and very far from the heavily urbanized stories that we have for other third plague pandemic outbreaks. Yeah, I think the rural story is interesting, but even the urban one can be flipped around, right? Immediately what came to mind was Mike Van's book on the Great Hanoi Rat Hunt, and in there, where's all the urban improvement happened? It's in the French Quarter, not in the Vietnamese Quarter, and thus it's in the French Quarter in which you know all these rats are scurrying around and doing things, and the response is quite different in terms of the focus of the rats. It's about you know collecting rats and killing rats rather than rebuilding houses, right? Even though it's still a focus on the rat in that sense. The other thing that sprang to mind, at least that I thought, was it's interesting that there's this focus on home improvement, and then eventually it just kind of peters out and stops, or it becomes, to an extent, something the state just keeps doing. And I'm reminded, probably because I was on trains and subways this past week in the New York area, about what was or what wasn't done because of COVID, right? So, you know, some things have gotten better in the sense of, we'll call it, infrastructure improvement, right? You put together better ways of filtering air and those types of things. But in many senses, right, we were on a train that was, you know, single deck and clearly did not really have any air filtering system, at least that I could tell that it improved 
because of COVID, despite the fact that everyone acknowledges that that's something that should have been spent in terms of money. And you're just obviously encouraged to, if you want, keep wearing a mask, which obviously even the numbers in New York City are quite low. It's an interesting point. I mean, as someone who with very little expertise in all this, I mean, but trying to kind of like make sense of the world around me, it seems that, I mean, the infrastructure we have put in place over the past century or so, right? I mean, since the third plague pandemic in Java, that infrastructure is expensive to maintain and expensive to keep on improving on one hand. And on the other hand, I mean, you could also argue that the funding we allocate to those goals is decreasing, right? I mean, to put it mildly, I mean, we're trying to defund a lot of these public services. And I mean, I could give examples here in Israel as well. Yeah, I think that really goes back to the point we made, which is the long-term questions are pretty important in how we think about those things and conceptualize them should be the focus both for research in the past and I think obviously improving health in the future. But I wanted to ask you, Lee, on a even less serious note, are you getting ready to travel with your daughter and what's the longest distance you've ever traveled with her? And is there anything special you do when you travel with her? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, we are. Longest distance traveled, I would say probably about, let's say, two hours in the car, maybe like pushing on three. And she also flew, I think, two and a half hours. I think that was like the flight she took. And when we're looking at the United States, I mean, I'm actually more concerned first about the flight, which is going to be somewhere around 11 hours, probably late at night. So that would be helpful. I mean, she could sleep for part of that. But uh, we've started talking about it and I mean, what are we going to do and we're going to have fun in the flight, we're going to play these games and you're going to sleep. And I mean, this is going to be a thing. I mean, the first flight she was on, she was two years old and she was like super excited. She stayed up late to like midnight, which was when the flight was and refused to go to sleep until we took off. So yeah, we'll see how, how this one goes. As for moving in the United States moving inside, I mean, driving around. I don't have any insights about that, Merle. I think you're the one who's supposed to like give me tips about how to do this because apparently you've been like traveling all over the place now. Yeah. I mean, I'll say for the flight, I agree with you. That's the pressing concern and it's a long flight. But on the other hand, you're literally doing it once. So even if it's a disaster, you don't have to do it again for at least a long time. And to be honest, for such a long time, I presume at least maybe you'll go back home for the holidays at most, that she'll be a different age, right? So her reaction to it in a month will be very different than her reaction to say flying in four months or five months even, right? So that's one thing to keep in mind on a positive note. So you're saying that memory is also a thing here, but I guess your kids are now very used to traveling, right? Because you're traveling, I guess, almost every day, or you had been traveling almost every day until reaching Princeton? Yeah. As I said, they did quite well on these long legs from Oklahoma. So we drove, you know, driving time, not how long it actually takes, but the first leg was about seven and a half hours, then about eight and a half hours, then I think five and then four or thereabouts. The four and the five are quite easy. That's like a joke. You just stop once, you know, let them go pee, get some more gas in the tank, drink some, you know, coffee or whatever you might prefer, and then you keep going. So from my perspective, anything under five hours is pretty easy. Just, you know, my thoughts. So you're apparently becoming a road tripper, Merle. I mean, just like taking five-hour trips here and there. Yeah. What we do is, I would say, on the longer legs, let's say the eight-and-a-half-hour leg, in the morning, the kids just kind of play and they look at stuff and they talk to each other and they read books and they play games with each other in the back. And then we'll stop for lunch. And then after lunch, they usually get some type of screen time for about an hour and a half, which is about what they would get anyways. And that you can make a good dent in your drive. And then by that point, you only have one more stop and you're done for the night. So that's why I think it's actually not terrible. And they tend not to object too much, especially if they know you're up to something new or something exciting. You know, you can talk to them about that for most of the morning, what you see, what you're going to be doing next. Two questions then. One is, what's their favorite movie now as they drive? And I guess you're supposed to hear these movies like probably like every day. 
Well, we'll see about that. That's one. And second question is about night trips. I mean, do you drive at night at all? I mean, when they sleep with them, like just to sleep and that supposedly being easier. I mean, we've kind of like thought about that as a potential solution. Yeah. So on the first question, they have now basically because of the second drive, rather than us having to listen to them watch something, because we actually randomly have a DVD player in the car we use, but we bought them tablets and headsets. So they watch whatever they want to watch. So I think one of them likes to watch cars. The other one likes to watch a My Little Pony movie. I'll let you decide which one is which and what I think about My Little Pony. But that's neither here nor there. On the night drive, I know people have done that. The first leg we did, we left Oklahoma City at about, I think, 4.30 in the morning. And the assumption was we were going to do the first leg and they would go back to sleep. And we wanted to get to St. Louis to see some of actually friends you know who met us in St. Louis. So we wanted a full half day with them there. That's why we did it. Our kids, we had to obviously wake them up to put them in the car and they just never went back to bed. So, I mean, maybe if you, you know, got in the car at seven and we're going to drive all night or something like that, that could work. But I can tell you from our experience, we put the kids in the car at 430 and they just never went back to bed. So that didn't work. I'll remember that tip then. So on that note, we will wrap up this episode. We'd like to thank our sponsors at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and also Oklahoma State University for funding the podcast. And as usual, our team, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Veridra Kanati. Until next time, enjoy the warm weather and give Lee some tips on how he should drive with his daughter. <laughs>